Our scripture today comes from Colossians chapter 4, verses 7 through 18. Um, you can read on your bulletin or on your Bible, whether virtual or physical. I read. Tychicus will tell you about all my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know we, who, how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him, and Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Sam. Good morning, church. Well, I am betting that every single person in here knows who the Incredible Hulk is, right? I mean, maybe there's, maybe there's one person who doesn't, but um, I grew up actually getting to know the Hulk through uh, the comics, and um, there was actually a television series about the Incredible Hulk and starring a bodybuilder named Lou Frigno. And for the young people, you have no idea what I'm talking about, do you? <laughs> well, the Hulk, his, his greatest strength is the fact that he gets enraged, that he gets angry. And that, that strength is incredible, right? Uh, for the younger audience, you guys, you guys know about that movie, The Avengers, right? In the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Uh, and you saw in that movie, the Incredible Hulk use his strength for good, uh, when the alien invaders, the, um, what are they called, the Shatari, when they're coming to uh, take over the world, right, uh, the Hulk gets enraged and he's like smashing everything up. One of my favorite scenes in that movie is when he's fighting Loki. Uh, you may remember this, right? They're, they're, they're doing battle and then Loki says, stop, enough of this, enough of this, I am a god and you're just something else and what does the Hulk do? Right? You remember? He grabs a hold of Loki and bam, 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 bam. And then he walks away and says, puny God, puny God, right? The Hulk, his, his, his greatest strength is his rage, 
But that greatest strength can also be a weakness, could be a, a, an incredible weakness. If you remember in that movie, when he's uh, in the very beginning of the movie, he gets on the helicraft, right? And, and they're getting ready to submerge the helicraft into the ocean like a submarine. And this is what Bruce Banner says. He says, they want me in a submerged, pressurized container, right? What he's alluding to is, right, man, I could be a danger to all of my friends and all of the good people on this helicraft. I mean, it's the reason they made that special containment cell. It wasn't for Loki. It was for the Hulk. Hulk's greatest strength could be an incredible weakness as well. And you know, the church, the church has many strengths, many strengths. But if the strengths of the church are not channeled, if they're not shaped by the gospel of Jesus Christ, we're going to find that those strengths can become incredible weaknesses as well. For example, diversity. Diversity in the church can be a wonderful strength of the church. It could be different cultures. It could be different races. It could be different political persuasions. These could be strengths. But if the gospel is not informing, if it's not shaping that diversity, well, that church can be torn apart could be torn apart because each tribe, each culture can, can prefer their way of doing things as the way, and that can destroy the church. And so as we look at the passage today, we're going to unpack a little bit about this, uh, strengths becoming weakness. We're going to look at a gospel culture, and when we look at this closing, this salutation, you're going to see all these people. You're going to see a picture of gospel diversity, a beautiful diversity, that can become a weakness. You're also going to see a second characteristic of the church, which is gospel restoration. And then we're going to close by looking at gospel calling. Well, as I mentioned in the salutation, uh, this closing to the letter, and it's hard to believe we're right at the end now uh, of the book of Colossians. But when we look at this uh, list of nine or ten people, what we see is a beautiful diversity that is the body of Christ. We see Jews like Aristarchus, Mark, and Justice. We see Greeks alongside of them. We see a slave called Onesimus called out. We see men, and we see a woman whose name is Nympha, and we're going to find out that she hosts a church in her house. When we look at human history, what, we, what do we see? We actually see a lot of division. We see a lot of tribalism. Right? People huddling in their own tribes, whether it's race, whether it's social class, or whatever. And, and the church today, the modern world in the church today, sadly, is no different. It's no different. We huddle in our places of comfort. And I, and I think we forget when we come to a passage like this, just how radical, just how radical the early church was in not adopting the surrounding culture. Because you see, Jews did not associate with Greeks. They didn't associate with them. How could they be in the same organization? Women were, were treated as just a step above personal property. And the master was above the slave. And so to see all of these names in this salutation, it's a, it's a strong statement that the church of Jesus Christ is one that is diverse.
How did they come to this idea that, that they would be like this? Well, we look and see Jesus, and they saw Jesus. They saw Jesus reaching out to a Samaritan woman. Now, you talk about reaching across the gender divide, the religious divide, the ethnic divide, all in one person. When he reaches out to the Samaritan woman, he crosses that divide. We see Jesus reaching out to the leper, an outsider, and healing him. We see Jesus receiving a tax collector. We see Jesus ministering to a Roman centurion. That's the beauty of Jesus. Jesus is showing us that there are no outsiders in the kingdom of God. There are no outsiders. And what can silence racism? What can silence the inequality in genders? What can silence this political divide more than knowing that Jesus came and he gave his life? He laid it down. He was our substitute to bring together every type of human being, every type of sinner. In the kingdom of God, we unify around Jesus. But don't confuse unity with uniformity. You know, in the body of Christ, we actually honor, we cherish our distinctions. We don't obliterate them. We don't erase them. We honor them. My wife, Debbie, makes a wonderful Spanish dish. It's called paella. And there's a few of you in here that have had this. Paella is a, is a Spanish rice dish. It's a seafood dish. And if you eat it, you encounter all of these separate ingredients, like shrimp and clams and scallops and sausage and tomato and saffron. All these things are standing out, ingredients on their own, holding to their distinctive. But in that one dish, there is a unity. It all comes together in a, just a beautiful symphony of food, right? Unity, but not uniformity. You know, LBC, this morning I look out on the congregation, and we have wonderful diversity, actually. I know you, you may think of diversity only in race, but we have diversity in so many different ways. We're a multi-generational church. That is a wonderful thing. Churches today are, are becoming very homogenous. We're multi-generational. We have a wide socioeconomic swath here. We are broad theologically. We are broad politically. Those are great strengths. They show the diversity of the body of Christ. But those strengths can be incredible weaknesses if they're not informed, if they're not shaped by the love of Jesus Christ, by his gospel. Because you see, in, in, in a crowd that, that's this diverse, what can happen is that we can, we can get stuck in our own way. We can begin to think that our way is the way. We can prefer ourselves over our brother or our sister that can divide the church. That can tear us apart. You know, in the early church, uh, as I mentioned, there were Jews and Gentiles together. That, that's a radical thing. And it was not without problem. It was not without problem. That's why in Acts chapter 15, 
you see that they're having this friction and it's so much so that they're going to have to call the elders and the apostles together to figure out how are we going to navigate this friction between such radically different classes of people. How do we do it? We do it by being shaped by Jesus. By being shaped by Jesus. You know, diversity in the church comes with many challenges. And I want to suggest a place for us to start. A place for you to start is to widen your own circle. Widen your own circle. Who, who is not in your circle right now? Who, who's, that, who's that class or that person who's not in your circle that maybe if they were in your circle would be just a little bit uncomfortable for you? Widen your circle. Invite them into your life. Invite them into your story. Welcome them into your story. That may cause you to have to reach across the political aisle to someone that you just radically disagree with what they hold to. It may cause you to reach out to someone who is wealthier than you or radically poorer than you. It may cause you to reach out to someone who is in a different culture who is so different from you. Widen your circle, church. Invite people like this into your life. And it's going to put you out of your comfort zone. And how do we handle this? We handle this the way that Paul has been encouraging us in, in Colossians chapter 3. We're to put on Christ. Put on Christ. And what does that look like? It means putting on humility. Humility. Forgiveness. Kindness. Compassion. Preferring the other person over ourselves. Extending grace. What does that look like? Grace is favor. Giving favor towards that outsider and drawing them in. The gospel community of Jesus is one where the outsiders are brought in. The gospel community of Jesus is diverse. It is inclusive. It is a place where all sinners, every type of human being on this planet is welcome. That's what we're going to see when we get to heaven. And so a gospel community is one that has a beautiful gospel diversity. It's also one in which there is gospel restoration. You're going to see this in two people in the salutation. You're going to see this in Onesimus. You're going to see this in Mark. I think it's of major, major significance that Onesimus is mentioned in this salutation. There's some prominence here that he is mentioned, right? If you remember, Onesimus was a Colossian. He is a Colossian. And what did he do? He ran away from his master, Philemon. And if, if you were to understand, in that culture, under Roman law, Onesimus could have been severely punished for what he did. But what we see here is restoration, gospel restoration. Paul uses these words to describe Onesimus, he calls him our faithful and beloved brother. Faithful. Wow. This was the guy who ran away. This is the guy who broke the law. And Paul is restoring him. Paul is lifting him up. Paul is giving him back his dignity to the church and saying, receive him, welcome him. He is faithful. He is a beloved brother. And it's only the gospel 
of Jesus that can turn this institution of slavery upside down, completely upside down. It turns slaves into brothers. And it does this because Jesus himself modeled this. I I, I mentioned this to you guys a couple of weeks ago that Jesus himself, who was the Lord of all creation, the creator of everything, the master of everything, and we see him becoming the slave of all, washing the very feet of the disciples, serving them. Now, it's also significant that Mark is mentioned in in the closing of this letter. You know, Mark uh, is not a slouch. He's not an insignificant person. He's the guy who wrote the gospel according to Mark. And in Acts chapter 13, we find out when Paul and Barnabas are about to go on their very first missionary journey around the Mediterranean, they take with them Mark. But what happens? Mark bails out on them. He bails out. He wimps out. Now, we don't, we don't have the reasons that this happened, but he leaves the journey. And then when Paul and Barnabas sometime later are scheming and planning for that next trip, the subject of Mark comes up. What are we going to do about Mark? Well, Paul is adamant. We're not going to take Mark with us. And in Acts chapter 15, the language is that that there arose a sharp disagreement between Paul and Barnabas. There was bad blood between Paul and Mark. Paul didn't want to have anything to do with this guy, Mark. And so what happens? Paul and Barnabas go the other way. Barnabas takes Mark. They go the other way. But now, sometime later, we have this salutation to the Colossian church. And in it, this is how Paul talks about Mark. He says, welcome him. He's a fellow worker for the kingdom of God. He's a comfort to me. Something happened in the, in, in the time that elapsed. Paul and Mark were restored in their relationship together. And now, what's going on? Paul is paving the way for his restoration before the entire church. They may have heard of this rift, but now, no longer. Welcome him. Paul is doing that very hard work of restoring a brother. Well, these are messy, messy situations. I want you to realize that. I mean, we got a runaway slave. We've got slavery in the early church. We've got two of the New Testament writers that are, you know, going at it, bad blood. And what we see here is restoration. The church today, it's no less messy. The church today is no less messy. The church today is full of of sinners like you and me. And if you've been around the church for any amount of time, you've you've experienced this, you've seen it. You've seen addiction, you've seen abuse, you've seen adultery in its members and in its leaders. Man, that's, that's that's hard to reckon with. But what distinguishes the body of Christ is not that there is sin in the church, but it's how we handle that sin. How do we handle that sin? Colossians 3 again says that we put on Christ. We put on forgiveness. We put on restoration. We restore those who are repentant. We welcome them back into the community of Jesus. 
You know, the world in a situation like this that I've described, they, they, they would write off people. The world does this all the time, writing off people. The church does not have the luxury to write off people. The church of Jesus is the place on planet Earth where there has to be restoration, where there has to be forgiveness, where there has to be healing and hope. But I want to acknowledge that it is a messy, messy affair. It's heart-wrenching. It's confusing. It's hurtful. It's emotionally draining. And some of you have probably experienced that. I've walked through many situations like this in various churches. Marriages being destroyed, but then marriages being restored by Jesus. Leaders in the church going off the rails, but leaders being restored to gospel community. Now, that's not to say that there's not a place for when a leader gets restored, sometimes they don't get to come back into that position. I'm not saying that. But the church of Jesus, if there's any place on planet Earth where there should be restoration, where there should be healing, where there should be hope, it has to be within the body of Christ. It's the very heart of the gospel. It's what Jesus has done for us. We destroyed our relationship with God because of our sin. But Jesus reaches down with grace and he loves us and he restores us, and he does so gently. I'm reminded of how Jesus restored the, the disciple Peter. You know, you know, Peter blew it big time. He denied Christ three times. And, and in the book of John, there's this beautiful narrative of Jesus gently restoring Peter. Not demanding things of him, gently pulling him back into gospel community. That's the model that we have before us, the gentle and lowly Jesus. You may have blown it big time. I don't know if you can blow it bigger than Peter denying Christ three times. You may have blown it big time, but the church is a place where there is restoration. Lake Baldwin Church should be the community, the place where the broken are restored. You know, in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5, we have uh, it saying that Jesus has given us, he has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That's what we are to be about. And so my question for you this morning is this. Is there a relationship in your life that is broken? Is there a person that you're thinking of that, you know, you've, you've given up on? Is there someone in your life that has offended you and sinned against you and has caused so much hurt? I want to encourage you. It's actually in Matthew 18 that shows us how to deal with this. It's actually the one that, who's been offended that takes the initiative and goes after the one who offended them. You know, if Jesus can restore the relationship between a master and a slave, between, you know, Paul and Mark, 
between you and me sinners with God, he can restore that broken relationship. So a gospel community is one in which there's this beautiful gospel diversity. It's one in which there is this beautiful gospel restoration. And now we're going to see it's one where there is a gospel calling. You know, when you go through this list of people, you see people like Tychicus and Onesimus. They were actually employed to carry a letter, right? This letter to the Colossians. Uh, Tychicus was supposed to be an encourager. He's supposed to struggle on their behalf and encourage. Onesimus, he's he's also going to bring an update on Paul. We see that Epaphras, he is the founder of the Colossian church. He has that calling. Luke, we see, is mentioned in the, in the salutation. He's a doctor, but you also know he's the guy that, he's like a historian. He wrote the Gospel of Luke. He wrote Acts. And you see Nympha, the woman who hosts the church in her home in Laodicea. And then in verse 17, you see Arch- Archippus, where it says, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. That's Paul talking to him. See that you fulfill the ministry. If you are in Christ this morning, you have a ministry given to you by the Lord. Every single one of you. We often think that ministry is done by the pastors and the elders and the, and, and the staff Maybe the deacons too. Ephesians 4, 11 through 12 says this, and he gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. You see, it's the saints who are doing the work of the ministry. If you are in Christ, you are a saint. You are called to fulfill a ministry that God has given you. You have a gospel calling this morning. You know, some of you are basketball fans, and you know that the Miami Heat are in the NBA Finals for the seventh time, and they're not doing very well, are they? Um, But every, you know, they got there because every, every player has a role to fulfill, you know, the point guard is supposed to handle the ball and run the play, and the, the center is supposed to stand near the basket and, and, and be responsible for close-range shooting and rebounding. They are there because everyone is fulfilling their role. The church flourishes when the body of Christ, everyone is engaged in fulfilling the ministry that you have received from the Lord. And so what is Jesus calling you to this morning? What ministry has he called you to fulfill? Have you even thought about that? You may be here this morning and you're thinking, well, I have these plans for ministry and it's maybe a couple years away. I'm getting prepared for something in the future. And I I wanna say this, perhaps You're not there in the future yet because God has something for you right now. He's got business for you to take care of right now, to fulfill right now. And so how do you get started in that? How do you do that? Well, you can start by examining and seeing where God has you right now. What does he have you doing? Where does he have you? That means your workplace. That means your school. That means your neighborhood. And so whether you're a program manager, whether you're a teacher or a mom or a dad, 
God has you there and God has a ministry for you to fulfill. He has something for you right now. You may be a little bit confused about how does that look? What does that look like? You realize that this church, as I look out upon you, you guys are in places where the elders and the pastors and the staff will never be. You guys are with people where the elders will never come in contact with, and you are that light in their world. You are that cup of cold water for the thirsty. You're the one that can bring the bread of life, the only bread of life, Jesus, that can satisfy that hungry soul. You can be that person, that place of refuge for the afflicted. You can be that person who comforts. You know, if you're, if you're struggling with, like, how, how does that work? How, how, how can I do this? I don't understand uh, in my workplace, you know, as a program manager, how do I do that? You know, I want to invite you to contact me. Contact your shepherding elder. We'd love to sit down, hear your story, and, and pray with you and talk to you about, and, you know, how, how can I live in such a way that I fulfill the ministry that God has called me to? And we're going to pray that you would understand and have a knowledge of God's will for you, that you would have spiritual wisdom, that you would have understanding. These are the things that Paul started out praying for the Colossians. Well, gospel community has that beautiful diversity. It has restoration, and it has calling. You know, as we close and we look at the passage, there are a couple warnings there are a couple warnings that, about gospel community that we should heed. I'm gonna give you two of them. And the first comes in verse 17 with a mention of the name Demas. What is notable here is what's missing. Every person in here has some kind of description or something attached to them, but all we have is Demas. And we know from 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, we learn that Demas deserted Paul. And it says that he did this because he was in love with the present world. He deserted Paul. He deserted Jesus. Because Demas loved. He had an affection for the things of this world more than he had for Jesus. In 1 John 2, 19, it says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. And the reason I share that verse is Demas is showing that he, though he was part of the gospel community, he looked like he was a saint. He showed he was not because he didn't remain. The second warning is the church at Laodicea. We see this in verses 15 and 16. Now, this church was a sister church of the Colossian church. It was in that same Lycus River Valley. And we found out as we studied Colossians that, that Epaphras had actually had ministered there. And we learn in the salutation that Nympha is actually, this woman is, she is hosting the church of Laodicea in her home. And that the, and that the greetings in the salutation are for the Laodicean church also. That the letter to the Colossians are for them also. And the sad thing is, what was once probably a very healthy, vibrant church had become unhealthy. 
In Revelation chapter three, by the time the apostle John wrote Revelation, this is what we learn about that church. This is what he says starting in verse 15, chapter three. I know your works. He's talking about the church in Laodicea. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered. And I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, you are pitiable, you are poor, you are blind, and you are naked. What's interesting here when we think about this church and what the scripture is saying is that this was a well-resourced church. They were rich. They had the resources. They had all the signs of prosperity that things were going well for this church. And Jesus is saying, no, you are poor. You're impoverished. And he calls them lukewarm. And the explanation is given in the passage. You're lukewarm in this way. What have you done? You have strayed away from Jesus. And now you are relying on your strengths. You have strayed away from Jesus. Now you are trusting in your resources and in your riches. What had be, was a strength had become a weakness because it left out Jesus. When we look at Demas, when we look at the Laodicean church, this is a warning. This is a reminder to us that any individual... Any church can stray from Jesus. We can drift away. We can fall in love with this world and what it has to offer. And we can be like the Laodicean Bible Church, LBC. We can begin to look to our own resources and we could forget Jesus. And so we need our hearts to be captured. We need to be reminded of the weakness of Jesus. Because it's his weakness that led him to the cross. It's his weakness that he puts on human flesh and he's tempted and he's tried in every way that we have been but yet without sin. He shows his weakness in being deserted, abandoned, forsaken by his father. You realize on the cross, Jesus lost all of his community. He lost his friends. He lost his relationship with the Father. He was estranged. And why is that? So that strangers, outsiders like you and me can be brought into gospel community. Jesus became weak so that we could be brought in to this beautiful thing that he calls the church. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, your son is exceedingly beautiful. Lord, we see in him reaching out to all of the outsiders in society, the weak, the lame, the people that you don't want to go near. He reaches out and he sets his love upon them. Thank you for such a savior. We see Jesus, the one who is restoring the broken. He has done that for us as well. How beautiful the feet of Jesus. We see Jesus, the master and Lord of all of creation, 
becoming the lowest slave for us. How beautiful is your son, Jesus. Lord, we worship him. We praise you this morning, and we give you thanks for your dear son. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.